BB. This is Rumble. Hi. It's Michael Moore. BB. Are you listening? BB Benjamin? Can you hear me? It's tax day in the United States. I'm recording this here on Monday night, May 17th. And man, 26 bucks. What a show I am getting from you, BB. $26. That's, that's how much I gave you this year as an American and every other working American who paid taxes, all 155 million of us, gave you about $4 billion to do that thing that you do. That's 26 bucks from each of the 155 million of us. Now, what did I get for my $26? Well, I've been watching it on TV this week. Crushing it, man. BB, you are crushing it. Dropping those bombs, shooting those missiles, killing those children. And all it cost me was 26 bucks. Because those are my bombs that you're using. Those are my missiles. Yeah. And in return, I get to watch the slaughter of innocent people. The slaughter of these civilians, of watching a high-rise apartment building crumble like the Twin Towers did on 9-11. Wow, you're good at this. You're really good at it. I know, I know. You have a right to defend yourself. Do you? Do you really have a right? I mean, yes, defend yourself because, I mean, that's, we're all humans. I mean, we all, all of us want to live. So if we sense that we're in some kind of danger, you know, we will do whatever to defend ourselves. But do you have a right? I mean, what would General George Custer say? The Battle of Little Bighorn. Hey, we have a right. These Indians are, are firing arrows at us. We have a right to defend ourselves. <laughs> That's it. The British at Lexington and Concord. Hey, hey, these colonists are, they're rising up. Yes, we, sh- we shot a, but we have a right to defend ourselves. We're the British Empire. Did they have a right? Did Custer have a right to defend himself? Before he fell dead? Did he have a right? Did the apartheid regime in South Africa have a right to defend apartheid? You can go throughout history here. This will take all night, so we're not going to do that. But you get my point, right? You do understand who the oppressed is and who the oppressor is. Mike, Mike, you don't understand. Mike. You don't understand the context here. You don't understand the history. Hmm. Yeah. I understand what I'm seeing right now, though. 
you want to talk history though? Okay. Here, let me, I'll give you some history and let me tell you what, what I understand. There's a Palestinian guy from Flint, Michigan that owns the Detroit Pistons. That's a fact. (laughs) In fact, we grew up with so many Palestinians and Arab neighbors and friends and and I mean, they were such an integral part of Flint and Detroit and southeastern Michigan. And anybody who grew up in this zone uh, knows that, as they would say often, that this is the largest uh, uh, population of Arabs and Muslims uh, outside the Arab-speaking world in the southeastern Michigan area. And so. You know, we lived together and worked together. And, you know, anybody from Flint remember going to Hamity's? That was our grocery store. In fact, it was a chain of grocery stores in the Flint area called Hamity's. And, of course, Hamity's were Arabic people, Arab Americans. There were the Gibrons. Remember the Gibrons? Tom and Mike? They had, the, like, the best dance club in Flint called the Mighty Micatam. Anybody remember this? I know Pete, you're listening to this uh, someplace in the middle of Ireland. Mike, what are you talking about? I know this is just the 30 seconds for the people that grew up in Flint and, and, and Detroit. The Farahs, the Sifas, on and on and on. And they helped build a wonderful place called Flint, Michigan. So that's some of my, my history. But there were also our Jewish neighbors and the people that we knew and lived with in Flint. At one time, I don't know if it's still true, there were four Jewish temples and synagogues in Flint. Now, Flint's not a big city. I mean, the largest it ever was maybe 50 years ago. It had close to 200,000 people. It has less than 100,000 now, and they've got four Jewish temples. And it's like, wow, that's a lot. You know, Jews make up 1% to 2% of the United States population. But there was a large, you know, for a city the size of Flint, number of Jewish families. And why was that? Well, in part, it was because, and this is the history that we were taught, that it was, it was the Jews from New York who came to Flint and saved us. That it, that, the conditions in the factories were so awful back in the 1920s. Uh, uh, Jewish men and women, political activists, union organizers from New York, decided to move to Flint and Detroit and other cities to help organize workers into a union. Unions that did not exist at the time in the 1920s. It's not like they took the train or hitchhiked to Flint to attend a protest rally on some weekend back in 1928. No, they made a decision to leave their homes in New York, move to Flint and get jobs in the factories so that they could organize the workers in those factories. But they had to go onto these God-awful assembly lines and work building cars. And they had to commit to doing that for years because it was going to take years to do this organizing. And by 1932, they felt that they had done the work. And, and, and by that time too, of course, 
they had connected with the Ruther brothers and others in the Flint and Detroit area who were who were there already wanting to unionize. But they they brought with them from New York. And, and let's be honest, the, the word communist these days means something completely different. But back then, they were all communists. <laughs> they came from New York because communist meant something else than what you know people grew up with in the Cold War. They were committed to organizing the workers throughout America. And they succeeded to a very, very large extent. And it's not that the people of Flint couldn't have done this on their own, and may, maybe they would have. But I used to, each year I would go to the picnic of all the people who were still alive who took over the General Motors factories that founded the UAW and the stories they would tell of these wonderful people that came from New York City. And so they had a strike in 1932 and it failed and General Motors crushed them. But they didn't go running back to New York City. They stayed. They stayed and they said, this will take a while now, but we will make this work. It's the middle of the Great Depression. It's 1932. They worked for four more years organizing before they did their next sit-down strike. And they did it on the on the night, on the day before New Year's Eve, 1936. Took over the factories for 44 days and brought General Motors to its knees. And thus the UAW was officially baptized and born. And it was in large part to the Jews of New York who came to Flint to help organize this great union. And that story was passed on to us and we knew that. And by the time, you know, we were kids and, and because these Jewish organizers and union uh, people uh, stayed in Flint, they stayed working in the factories. They kept their jobs and, and they became a very important and large part of the community to, to the so much, so important that by the time I was saying what fifth grade in Catholic school, every Passover, they would take us to the Jewish temple and the people at the temple would uh, hold a Seder with us for us so that we would learn about the Jewish religion that we would, you know, uh, they would tell us stories and the nuns <laughs> before we went to the temple taught us, how to sing Jewish songs and do Jewish dances. I'm serious. So here you have these, these uh, fifth graders at Catholic school with the nuns going, okay, ready? Hava, Nagila, Hava, Nagila, Hava. I don't even know if I'm singing this right. I'm trying to remember something when I was 10 years old, but, I'm, but this, this is how we live. And in, in probably a rare sort of way, as things go in these United States, the idea of bigotry and hatred, anti-Semitism, um, not that it, it didn't exist, but we weren't raised with it. In fact, we were, we were, you know, the, the joke I always tell is that the nuns, while in all the other Catholic schools and other cities were taught that it was the Jews who killed our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We were taught in Flint that uh, it was not the Jews who killed Jesus. Uh, it was the Italians. 
I know there were, we were all Irish, so you know, just that was a it was more fun to look at it that way. So Flint um, was a town with a lot of uh, people who could speak Arabic and a lot of people of the Jewish faith. And when I say faith, a number of them, especially the organizers and people, were, were atheists too. Um, but they were also very proud of their uh, Jewish heritage and what that gave them in terms of their caring and concern for those who were living a difficult life in Flint, Michigan, and all the other places uh, where they suffered in these factories. So that's a little history. When you say, I need to know some history, you want context to how I'm viewing the slaughter that's taking place uh, this week over in Palestine. I started my own newspaper in Flint. It was called The Flint Voice. I started it back in 1976, 77. And, um, and I started um, providing pages in the paper uh, for Arab voices in the area, people that were traveling back and forth uh, from the occupied territories uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. And I made my paper starting in the 70s, a place where where we could talk about this. This paper also, I mean, we we did a front page story and an investigation of how the city of Flint at that time in the late 70s, the police were killing more civilians, usually black ones, than any other city per capita in the country. We were the we were the police killing capital, not the police being killed, but the police killing citizens. And so we did story after story after story on this and going after the police chief, and the police chief decides to run for mayor, and he becomes the mayor, and we become his target. And one day when he found out that we were writing a story exposing how he was misusing federal money, using essentially federally funded employees to campaign for him. He went and got an order from a judge and sent the Flint police into the printing plant to stop the presses, literally stop the presses and take the printing plates off the presses of our paper, the Flint voice, and then had them scoop up all the papers that had been printed and they, they carted them all off in the police vans so that that issue of the paper would not be seen by anybody in the public. Someday I'll do a, a an episode on this and what I learned at an early age about a, a police state, but I don't want to get into that today. Suffice it to say, uh, we got lawyers, the ACLU stepped in, uh, uh, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, and um, we got our issue of the paper back. When the massacres occurred at Sabra and Shatila, Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, uh, a massacre of Palestinians uh, overseen uh, by the Israeli army and the Israeli general, Sharon, we devoted our entire cover uh, to it. So this issue I've thought about this for a long time, and I've cared about it, and I cared about it 
in the same way that I cared about um, what the police were doing in Flint and what was happening. You see, when I hear people say that they support Israel, but then, but then they condone the brutality against the Palestinian people, I say to them, you know, your, your support of Israel has no integrity or credibility. There's, there's no honor. If you don't support the human rights of everyone, then you support the human rights of no one. And that's, you know, kind of how I've lived my life. So, you know, I helped, I participated in things back in the 70s and the 80s when it came to how Arab Americans were being treated, but how the Palestinians especially were being treated. And also in the, in the 80s, I think it was the early 80s, Reagan was president. And um, when he decided to go to a Nazi cemetery where Nazis were buried, SS, and lay a wreath at their graves when he was making a visit to Germany. My friend Gary, whose parents both were survivors of Auschwitz, we decided, why don't we just get on a plane and fly over there and confront Reagan in the cemetery? <laughs> We're sitting there in Michigan. And uh, a couple friends of ours, Jack and Lori, made this big banner for us, spray-painted this banner. We came from Michigan to remind you, that's what it said. We came from Michigan to remind you they murdered my family, not mine, Gary's family. So he and I got on a plane, flew over there. I won't go into the whole, I'll save this story for another time. If you saw my Broadway play, you know the story. If you, if you read it in my book, Here Comes Trouble, you know the story. Suffice it to say, we got, we snuck into the cemetery and we were able to confront in our own little way. Uh, Ronald Reagan for uh, putting a wreath on the graves of SS Nazi soldiers. And I know Gary was very appreciative that I helped organize this and that, um, you know, went with him. But I mean, that's just who, how I was raised. That's who I am. I, I would want everybody, anybody listening to this who's Jewish, uh, to know that that there's at least one person, and there are more, many more, millions more. But in my case, speaking for myself, there's one person who will always have your back. Always have your back. N do whatever I can do to never let any harm come to you. There will be no repeat of what happened with the Holocaust. That's how I've always felt. That's how I felt, even by going and taking this public stand against Reagan, doing something nice for the Nazis, was so insane. But that's who I am. So that's what, 19, I don't know, 1984 maybe? That took place? In 1985, I received a grant, a journalism grant, scholarship, so to speak. Um, that allowed me to go on a fact-finding tour of the Middle East just to kind of get a sense of things. And when we got to Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, um, it was like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Honest to God. It was so sad and so frightening and so 
it, it just hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks that Israel, of all people, that would be doing, causing this kind of harm to Palestinians, making them live like this. No rights, no say. You know, it, it, the sense that you're living in a big prison. Wow, it just kind of, it blew my mind. And two and a half years later, there was an uprising amongst the Palestinians, kids with stones, throwing stones at the soldiers. It was called the Intifada, the first Intifada. And within a month of it starting, I went with some journalist friends over there to cover it. And again, I'm just stunning. Getting caught in the middle of Israeli soldiers firing rubber bullets, whizzing by me. I can't believe none of them hit me. Um, but I look back at it now and I'm thinking, boy, I don't know if I would take this kind of risk again. That was just, that was crazy. And they were killing these kids that were throwing stones at them. And when we went to Gaza, I've never been, I, I've been to a lot of places in the world, a lot of very poor countries. I'd never seen anything like this. Two million people living on a very narrow strip of land and with nothing and surrounded by the Israeli army. Wow. I just couldn't get over it. You know, once you see something, you can't unsee it. Something like this. I had just, I had also just begun making my first film, Roger and Me. I came back home to keep working on that and, and finish it and still rattled by um, what I'd seen. And when the film came out and you know, got a very favorable reaction from a lot of people in this country. Um, I got an invitation from the uh, Jerusalem Film Festival to come and show the film. And and because these curfews and from the Intifada was still was still essentially going on, I just I asked the festival. I said, "Well, I'm honored. Thank you, and I'd love to come." Um, will Arab people? be able to watch my movie. Explained, well, you know, we have these curfews, so no, they like if if it's going to be at a theater in Jerusalem and they live in Bethlehem, no, they can't. Bethlehem's like, you know, less than five miles outside of Jerusalem. They, uh, they can't, no, they won't be able to see it. I said, well, then that's a segregated situation. I can't participate in that. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, this is the government, the government. We don't agree with this, but... Uh, and I had to make a decision, and, and I and I decided, and I just said, look, I can't, this is like an apartheid situation here. I can't do this. I can't, you know, they're the, they are the majority, certainly in the West Bank and Gaza, clearly. And yet, yet, how many screenings of this film will take place in these occupied territories? None. Okay. Well, at least, look, if I don't come, you'll, you're going to have subtitles on it, right? Yes, there will be uh, Hebrew and French subtitles. And I said, French? What? What's that got to do with anything? <laughs> the people that live in, so this is Jerusalem Film Festival. The people that live there are uh, Jewish, 
Israelis and Arab, Arab Israelis or Arab Palestinians who live in the occupied territories. Why, why don't you have Hebrew and Arabic on the screen? Well, it's just the way we do it. I said, oh, man, I can't participate in this. It's 1989, right? So I can't participate in this. I, 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 yes, show the film, fine. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, can't, I can't come. They were really bummed out. I, I felt bad bumming them out, but I just said, I just... You know, and in fact, by that time, I had already sold the film to Warner Brothers, so I couldn't pull the film because Warner's had already said yes. And anyway, so, um, oh, man, it was in all the papers that I wasn't, I refused to come because uh, Arab citizens, Arab residents, Arabs under occupation could not come to the theater and watch the movie. And even if they could, their language would not be the subtitles on the screen. And so, because I made a point about this, I was pilloried uh, in most, not all, of the Israeli press. They have a very, you know, or at least at the time, had a very strong left wing in Israel and in their press. And there were some that were very, very supportive of me. But so anyway, so I didn't go. The jury, and usually these festivals have kind of an international jury, the jury picked. Roger Me, my, my film, as the best uh, film of uh, the festival. <laughs> Gave it the top prize. And, of course, I'm not there to accept it. And, I would, of course, I wasn't going to go and accept it. So that's another whole round of stories in the press about how I wasn't. They, you know, they're so generous. They gave me the, be- the top prize, and then I wasn't there. But I will, I will not participate in anything like that, that has segregation that's essentially based on racism and an apartheid situation. And I just, I stuck, I stuck to that. I took a lot of crap for it, but it's okay. You know, the next year I'm at the Toronto Film Festival um, and I see the woman who is the head of the Jerusalem Film Festival and she's coming toward me. And I'm like, <clears throat> I'm getting really nervous. I'm going, oh, no, I don't want to have to deal with this. She's going to be so mad. She came up to me and gave me this huge hug. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And then and then she sort of you know, held me there by my shoulders. And she said, thank you. Thank you for taking that stand. I know... I know you had to suffer for it, but you said the right thing. You did the right thing. And um, as a result, um, we have made changes this year at the festival. This, first of all, the subtitles on, on the films will not be Hebrew and French. It will be Hebrew and Arabic, number one. Number two, um, we if we find ourselves in a situation that we can't control because of the the army and the police and the and the right wing government, um, we will find a way so that the Arab citizens and residents and occupied people will be able to see the films. They will they are participants in Jerusalem. It is a divided city. By that time, Israel was claiming the whole city was theirs, even though East Jerusalem was essentially at that time all Arabic. But of course, they have been kicking the Palestinians out over many years 
since then. This is 1989, so we're talking over 30 years ago. And that's what that's what triggered this thing that happened here in the last couple of weeks, because they were kicking people out of their homes again. They wanted they wanted the apartments, they wanted the homes in Jerusalem, which is supposedly down the capital of of Israel. And if you live in Jerusalem, you're supposed to be a citizen, but not quite. You're a citizen if you're Palestinian. You have a little different form of identity card. You're color-coded if you're an Arab in Israel or the West Bank or Gaza or Jerusalem. Another another whole thing I'm not going to get into, but it's it's one of these things you see in an, in an apartheid regime. But she was so grateful that I'd done that and and it helped them make some of these changes that they needed uh, to make. And, and I was so grateful that she told me that and um, um, it just felt better. All the heat I had to take, you know, for taking that, that stand back in 1989. But overall, things did not get better in these 32 years since I won the prize at the Jerusalem Film Festival that I refused to attend, it has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Even right to the point where this past week, Mark Ruffalo takes his own stand, uses the word apartheid in describing the regime, uh, the Netanyahu forces, and Man, people came down on him and they started boycotts on Mark Ruffalo. And Mark Ruffalo is like the sweetest guy, <laughs> the biggest heart, um, a fighter for so many things in this country. Um, and he will be there. He shows up the middle of winter on the Indian reservation where they're trying to stop the pipeline. There's Mark Ruffalo. Flint, Michigan. Water. No water. There's Mark Ruffalo. I mean, I, literally, I don't know if you know this about Mark. He's, he's more than just the Hulk, you know. Plus, he's just a great actor, too, if you've seen him in all the other wonderful things that he's been in. And yet, he is being pilloried this week because he dared to speak up for the Palestinian people. And I thought to myself, wow, 32 years later, in the same kind of propaganda, the same kind of trying to whip it up against somebody who's saying the truth, and you're going to try and shut him down? See, that's the good news, is that, that well, sadly, things have not gotten better for the Palestinians. The young people of this country and in Palestine and young Israelis and young people around the world have had enough. They've seen enough. They know the truth. And Bibi, Bibi Netanyahu, you know, it ain't going to work anymore. You overplayed your hand. You overstayed. You're welcome. And now, the young people around the world are not going to support you, are not going to tolerate this any longer. 
the young people of the United States who have led these movements from the Women's March to the March for Our Lives with the Parkland High School kids to the last election here and getting out the vote and then taking over the streets last year after the murder of George Floyd. Young people, young teenagers, adults, said enough is enough. And the treatment of George Floyd, in their eyes, correctly, and mine, and many of you who are listening to this, the treatment of George Floyd times that by 5 million, 7 million. And there you have the situation in Palestine and Israel or even an Arab citizen who has full citizenship in Israel still treated differently because he's an Arab. She's an Arab. This will not continue. No one's listening, Bibi. We have a right to defend ourselves. Yes, thank you, General Custer. Yes, you do, actually, because you are human and you want to live. It's complex. You don't know the history. No, but I know what my own eyes saw last night. I saw them pulling the four-year-old girl out of the rubble. The rubble that you created. I saw how you used the press. You, your, your, your PR guy held a press conference to say that, that you were sending in the ground troops into Gaza which scared people in Gaza. And so they went to hide under in their makeshift bomb shelters, these tunnels that they've got. And you somehow, because you guys are so good at this, BB, remember, you're an American. You know how to kill. Because we're great killers. And you did it, baby. You used the press because you wanted Hamas and the Palestinians and everybody to hear that you were you were crossing the border and coming into Gaza with the tanks and the soldiers. And so everybody ran to the tunnels to hide, to try to hide from the troops that you got the New York Times and all the Israeli press and everybody to report that, that this invasion had started. Remember reading this, everybody, a few days ago before the weekend? It was all a lie. They made it up because they knew... They would scare the Palestinians into the tunnels, the tunnels that they were going to send these bombs into to asphyxiate and to kill. God knows how many people. We don't know these numbers yet. We'll know this eventually. How many hundreds? Eventually, how many thousands? God forbid, please, no. That that were killed because you used and you and the press is so easily duped because if the Israeli spokesman is saying it, it's got to be true. It sounds so believable. And the Palestinians believed it. And they went into the tunnels and that's where they died. And then, of course, a couple of days later, your PR guy, your press person, whoever that is, had to apologize for the little ruse that they created so they could smoke them out. And then we watched those apartment buildings crumble in the exact same way 
that the Twin Towers crumbled. And it sent a chill down my spine to look at that. This is not the way I was raised to believe things about Israel. And I've tried to make a separation in my head because I know so many very, very good Israelis. I mean, the, the Israeli human rights group, and I'm probably going to mispronounce uh, the name, uh, but it's, it's I believe, Betselem is how it's pronounced. Betselem, the, the the which is Israeli, Israeli human rights organization, has called the Netanyahu regime an apartheid government. It has turned Israel into an apartheid country. That's the Israelis saying that. And then, of course, Human Rights Watch, the international organization, put out a 200-page report this year outlining every aspect of how Israeli apartheid works. It's not South Africa. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 21st century version. It's the smart way to do apartheid. And it's a stunning document. You can look it up online. I'll put a I'll put a link, couple links here, on the site, so you can read this. So many people want this to end, but let's stop with the false equivalency here. And whatever mistakes Palestinians have made, Palestinian leaders have made. Um. You know, I'm a pacifist, so no, I, I would, I would not be firing rockets. It's just me. Um, but I understand why. I understand why the Indians fired their bows and arrows at General Custer and any of the cavalry that was coming, because that's what people do when they're put in that situation. And it's amazing that people in Palestine can even think clearly because when you've been under this sort of attack since 1948, when you've been put in a, a prison and then the people running the prison call it a democracy. Wow. You don't know wh which way is up is white, black and black, white, all of that. It's just, No. Yes, everybody. President Biden, what took you so long here? And you're not, you still haven't done it. You got to pull the plug, Joe. You got to pull the plug on Netanyahu. You got to say, we're not sending you any more money. Do you stop this right now? They just announced yesterday a 735 million arms deal. We're sending the Israelis 735 million dollars worth of new weapons. Who are we? Look, Joe, I know, I know. It, it takes a while. It's taken a while. You know, of course, you're not Bernie, but that's okay. You've done some great things here. And now you need to listen to Bernie about this. He's written about it. I'm sure he's talked to you about it. You, you know, and you're, you're a good Catholic Back when I visited, the first time I visited Palestine, it was pointed out to me that that somewhere between 20 and 30% of Palestinians are Catholics. 
Catholics or, or Christians, most people aren't aware of that. Most people aren't aware that the, the Muslim Bible, which is called the Quran, has, has a whole chapter in there devoted to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the Quran, because they worship her. They honor her. We don't, in the Christian Bible, there's no book called Mary, but it's in the Quran. We're so ignorant and removed. And this is why we get into all this trouble and we let our government do things in our name and with our money that we never should let it do. And right now, when you see this suffering, you're causing it, my friends who are Americans who are listening to this, and I'm causing it. I'm paying for it. I paid $26 for it today. And I get a whole year's worth of oppressing the Palestinians for that. That is pretty, that's quite the deal, isn't it? You, most of you know I'm being sarcastic and right. Yeah. It's, it sickens me. I've been sick here. For a week watching this so there's so many other things we need to talk about and deal with and we're not going to have time to do that today but i do i had to not only be very clear about what i think we need to do and what president biden needs to do and we need to put bb benjamin netanyahu on notice that his time is up the days are over the world won't tolerate this anymore the Palestinian people are not going to stop. They're not going to tolerate it anymore. So we have to find a different way. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to take away, we're not going to be the bank anymore for you. 20% of the Israeli military budget is funded by us. One-fifth of it is just covered by us. That doesn't even count all the other things that we send them. Do you realize that three-fifths of all military aid that we give to other countries in the world, three-fifths of it goes to one country, Israel. Come on, everybody. This has to end. I went there nearly 40 years ago. I've had to live with what I saw and what I experienced. I've been writing about this for almost 50 years. And I'm done. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. And I know that the same power that brought all of us out into the streets this past year has to do the same thing now. And there are demonstrations taking place all across America uh, this coming weekend and the next weekend. And you just go online locally. Just type in, you know what to type in in Google. You'll find it. You'll find it. This is not a highly coordinated effort right now, but it's happening. And we need to make our voices heard because we are the funders of this oppression. We are the funders of this slaughter. We are the funders of this theft, of kicking people out of their apartments, of bulldozing their homes. We, you and me, something to think about on tax day. And you could say, well, hey, Mike, I mean, I only gave $26 all this madness i mean you know how much how much real harm did i cause with my 26 dollars well quite a bit my friend 26 dollars from 155 million of us 
went to this collectively over $4 billion. No, not another dime. Let's call it what the Israeli Human Rights Organization called this, apartheid. This is an evil regime run by Benjamin Netanyahu. No more. And we're not going to believe the lies anymore. None of the propaganda, all the stuff we're told. Oh, well, we had to blow up the building that the Associated Press was in because Hamas was using them as cover because they were, there were, there were militants in the building. Oh, come on. First of all, if you're Palestinian, you're all, that, it's redundant to call you a militant. You're, you're a people that have had your land and your homes stolen from you. Um, and, and you, and you're in, been part of a great erasure over the last 50, 60 years. So no, um, yes, of course there are militants <laughs> everywhere. There's militants in my apartment building, you know, um, don't, don't use that as an excuse, BB, uh, to, to bomb the building here. But I'm just saying, don't believe any of the stuff you're being told this week in the press, the, the, especially the American media has been so hoodwinked by this stuff for now for so long. All this, you know, they're firing, they're, they're firing these rockets into Israel from that building. And so, so let's, so let's kill 40 people in the building, you know, but, but were they, were rockets being fired from there? I don't believe any of it in the same way. I don't believe the Minneapolis police press spokesperson on the night of George Floyd's murder. You know what I'm talking about? That press release they sent out saying how he had a medical condition and died. That's remember that. They're liars. They're all professional liars. It's not just in Israel. It's this country. It's around the world. And if they're police and if they're military, you know, again, we need to go back to the old adage of everything that they're telling you is a lie. Nothing they say should be believed unless it's proven that they are telling the truth. But that you have to first accept, you have to begin with accepting that what you're being told is not the truth. Make them prove to you it is the truth. They're going to have a very hard time doing that. So don't fall for any of the stuff that you're hearing uh, this week. As I'm recording this now, 10 Israelis have died. And I think close to 300 Palestinians. It's, it's, there's a false equivalency there. And let me tell you something, though. Every single one of those 10 Israeli lives matter deeply. It's not a numbers game. But to hear the Israeli government and Netanyahu talk about like it's some even Stephen thing. Are you kidding me? One is a nuclear power and the other side has bows and arrows. And there's a reason they're firing those arrows. It's complicated, Mike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's complicated only in the sense that we have to figure out we are going to stop funding this insanity. Make your voice heard to your senators, your members of Congress, and to Joe Biden, who for some reason has taken down the phone. Remember we used to call in to Trump on the White House line? Now they've taken that down. You have to go to the White House website, and there's a form you can fill out with your complaint to the president. So do that too. But get on social media. I'll, I'll post a couple things here on my social media. I'll try to post a couple things here on my page. You should hear Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib from Detroit, 
her nine-minute statement in Congress here today. Uh, wow. Powerful stuff, my friends. Let's put an end to this. President Biden, or anybody who's working for him that is listening to me, you do not have our support. And we speak for millions and millions of Americans. The same millions, actually, who would give their lives to make sure that there would never will be another Holocaust again, who will stand for anybody who's Jewish and who's being attacked because they're Jewish and who is suffering any form of bigotry. We're the same people. And the reason our position has integrity is that what we would do to defend the Jewish people on this planet, if we don't do that for the Palestinians, for others, especially those who are being harmed by the formerly oppressed people, then we have no integrity. So if you support Israel, then you will support the end of this slaughter and the end of them living in a prison called Palestine. And I'm just going to throw this out here and we'll, we'll do an episode on it someday. We used to talk about a two-state solution. It's clear now that that's never going to work. So what we need is one democracy. We need everybody to live together on that land. Um, the Jewish residents are not going anywhere, my friends. That We are way past 1948 at this point. They are staying. And the Palestinian people are staying. In their homes, what's left of them, they should be able to come back, those who've had to flee, come back and live there and have one big democracy, one big country, and let the majority rule. You cannot have a democracy that's called a religious state. If you call it a religious state, it automatically isn't a democracy. It's for the members of that religion. And we all know that that is not democracy. If we say we believe in democracy, then let's, let's have a democratic country. Arabs and Jews and Christians and everybody, whoever lives there, one person, one vote. And, and whoever the majority ends up being, um, there will be a respect and a guarantee of the rights for the minority will be no different than the rights of the majority. I know I'm, I'm, I'm proposing something that we can't even do here in our own country. So, uh, you know, if you live over there, you can maybe just take this with a grain of salt because we are no example for the way that you should be living. All I know is I want my $26 back. Joe Biden, just make it out to Michael Moore. Send it to me. I want my $26 back. I can't have this on my conscience that I help pay for this slaughter and all the other slaughter that happened before this. That's what I wanted to say. I, I need to acknowledge our underwriters. Hopefully they haven't pulled out. Uh, if I could just take a second to do that. And then I just want to close by 
uh, saying one thing about uh, the coronavirus before we uh, sign off here today. I want to do a shout out to our underwriter today, SignalWire. SignalWire is not just uh, the remote communication platform of the future. It's the remote communication platform of the present. We've all had to learn new ways to collaborate and communicate with colleagues over this past year. The nonprofits, the Hollywood studios, the small businesses that have discovered SignalWire have found the solution. SignalWire is the closest you will get to the in-person experience while you're at home. It's got the best sound quality, the best picture quality, and the easiest way to work with others, either formally or informally. I was thrilled when I discovered these tech geniuses from Owasso, Michigan, and they had reached out to me to support Rumble. They're becoming the premier video collaboration platform, and you should find out for yourself why everyone is starting to get on board with SignalWire. Sign up today at SignalWire.com, uh, and that's spelled Signal. It's all one word, Signal, S-I-G-N-A-L, Wire, W-I-R-E, SignalWire.com with the code MORE, M-O-O-R-E, my last name, for a risk-free 30-day trial here. So that's SignalWire.com. Remember to use the code MORE, M-O-O-R-E. Go there now and find out just how great this is and be sure to thank them for supporting my podcast. Before we end, I just, the mask mandates that are being lifted, uh, the confusing statements from the CDC about you don't need to wear masks anymore. Um, I join with the uh, largest nurses union in this country. I join with the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. I join with uh, those Democrats in the Congress and others who have decried the stupid statement from the CDC that if you're fully vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask indoors anymore. Well, yes, that's probably true if everybody else where you are at has also been fully vaccinated and it's been three weeks since their second shot. Uh, but only a third of the country is vaccinated. They keep talking about this, you know, some, you know, how many got one shot. Well, you don't, that's not vaccinated. That's one shot. You need the second shot. And you don't know in the room, in the office, in the wherever, who's been vaccinated and who hasn't. No thought went into this. Look, folks, we've suffered through this for a good 15 months. And we have gone through a lot. Why just toss it all away when we might be so close to getting, you know, 60, 70, 80% of this country vaccinated? Why can't we just wait a few more months? Then we can talk about taking the masks off. I'm going to continue wearing my mask and I hope the rest of you do too. And don't be bullied by anybody about it. And the CDC needs to rethink this. The white house needs to get some clarity on this. I know politicians want to make people happy. And what would make us all happy 
is if we didn't have to wear a mask anymore. I get that. I'm one of those people. I don't want to wear it. But I don't need politicians trying to make me happy right now. I need politicians guaranteeing that we're not going to suffer through another year or two of this coronavirus. They've got to restate this, rethink this. This caught everybody by surprise. The doctors I've had on my on my podcast here, everybody is just like, what? This is not right, and it's too soon. We're only a third of the country is vaccinated. If if we get if we get if we don't get to the point where we've keep we te- the, the masks are no longer on us, the virus is looking for a host. We're vaccinated, so we're not going to be the host. Who's it? What's it going to look for? Our kids, the, from the babies to eleven years old, are not being vaccinated now. Is that something we want to see happen? Please, my friends, keep your mask on. Write, call, text, get on social media and tell the CDC to go back to the same way of doing this. Don't be bullied by these militias and the others who think that the whole virus is a hoax to begin with. Don't play into their hands. And finally, uh, just before we started recording today, it came it came out that the Supreme Court will hear this abortion case from Mississippi uh, starting in the fall, the one that, that is supposed to bring down Roe v. Wade and end abortion in America. I felt like I was watching an episode of The Handmaid's Tale uh, here a few hours ago with our conservative Christian Supreme Court. I call it the Gilead Supreme Court. And um, they basically are, they want a country where all women, any woman who gets pregnant is forced to go through nine months and deliver a baby. Has no choice. The government says you shall deliver that baby. I don't have any word yet on whether or not uh, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Justice uh, Amy uh, Barrett have offered to hold down any of these women during childbirth to make sure that that baby comes out. Um, but uh, this is creepy, fascistic, and um, we're going to have to let the Supreme Court know we will not tolerate uh, the government uh, controlling uh, women's uh, reproductive organs. That just is, that's, come on, friends, this is 2021. There's no way we're going to let this happen. Where the government run mostly by men, the minority gender, 51% of the country are female, and uh, their essential rights of their bodies are going to be taken from them by the Supreme Court next year. I know, we've got a lot of work to do. Thank you for listening today and um, please make your voice heard about our good friends the Palestinian people in Palestine in Israel and if you love Israel this would be the best thing you could do for Israel let's pull the plug thanks to our executive producer Basil Hamden our editor and sound engineer Nick Quaz 
and to everybody who had anything to do with helping me put this together and reaching out to the millions of you um, who have been downloading this now uh, for the last uh, almost 17 months. Wow. i got to run down to the post office and drop off my taxes. Take care, everybody. This is Michael Moore, and this has been a special Rumble episode. <laughs>